Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm excited for today's episode. I have a really good conversation uh, with an excellent scholar and a great friend of mine, Nathan French. You may have listened to his episode uh, on the podcast already, episode 20, where we do a little bit of an introduction to the ancient Near East. In this episode, we do a deep dive into his fascinating PhD dissertation topic. His paper was a theocentric interpretation of Hadat Tovera. Yes, the Hebrew is literally in the title, but to translate it for you, it's a theocentric interpretation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So there are uh, obviously, this tree is really important for interpreting one of the most important areas of the Hebrew Bible. And in our conversation, we cover the history of interpretation of how have people throughout history viewed this tree? What is it? What does it mean? What does it represent? And by the end of our conversation, you'll see that Nathan, he sees um, he sees something unique in this tree that it's not just any old, like God gave, had to give some random command, don't do this, and so it's a placeholder for anything. Anything God told him not to do, they did it, and so they sinned. He says there's an additional dimension to how we interpret the story, because the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that phrase, knowledge of good and evil, uh, it's an important phrase throughout the ancient Near East, as well as the Hebrew Bible, and so there's another nuance, another dimension, that adds a layer of depth to this. So uh, I'm excited for you guys to listen in on this conversation. As a reminder, Nathan French, his master's degree, uh, he studied in Jerusalem. How awesome was that? Uh, Studying at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and his PhD from the University of Aberdeen. And in both, his expertise was Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East. So he's an excellent scholar. Happy to get to bring him uh, to the table for Hebrew Bible Insights for you. And if this type of content is valuable for you, sharing, liking, giving reviews, posting comments, all that stuff's very helpful. Uh, thank you so much for joining this episode and hope it's valuable for you. Let's dive right in. Hey, this is Matthew from the future. One more quick note. For those of you who prefer YouTube, you can actually find this episode on our YouTube page, Hebrew Bible Insights. In fact, uh, most of our episodes from here on out, you will also be able to find on YouTube. And maybe you know other people who that's their preferred place to find content. Be sure to let them know. And now, finally, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Dr. Nathan French, welcome back to the show. Yes, thanks for having me, Matthew. We had a great time last time. We did, and I'm really looking forward to being back here. Talking about the ancient Near East in general, episode 20, a lot of fun. Uh, But this one, we're going to dive into your most intense academic research uh, that almost anyone could do. That's right. The PhD dissertation. Yes, there there is nothing more intense than this, I suppose, no. (laughs) Oh, I cannot imagine. You tell me about it. Look, I enjoyed my master's degree, and I'm sure PhD will be down the road for me. And congratulations on finishing. Thank you. Uh, Yes, yes, congratulations. And uh, yes, I do hope that you move on to PhD work. So it'll be fun. Yeah. So you finished your process. Obviously, you finished the dissertation a few years ago, but then you also got it published, which I'm really glad you did. And so when did that get published? Yeah, it got published uh, beginning of this year, January 2021. And uh, yep, finished in 2018. So I published with Vendenhoek and Ruprecht. 
in uh, Germany and really, really enjoyed publishing with them in their freelance series. And uh, uh, it was a really, really smooth and good process. And of course, uh, this book here has an additional chapter from my dissertation, so it makes it uh, makes it unique in that sense. I like so, that. Yeah. There we go. That's yeah. good. Uh, by the way, we'll put a link to this in the show notes because I have. No, I'm sure no one has any idea how to spell uh, the German <laughs> name. You know, yeah, right? Although great publishing company. Yes, and, fantastic. Um, yeah, this is the perfect kind of research. I'm excited to get to bring on mm. the podcast. Uh, what you've done with this, uh, we've been planning this for a while, getting to do it, and so I'm glad you finally get to come on. Mm. And well, we thanks get, for having me. So this is really great. Yeah. So I kind of just wanted to start off by asking a question. Uh, first off, I guess we should say your PhD dissertation is about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is correct. So uh, the title is A Theocentric Interpretation of Hadat Tovera, The Knowledge of Good and Evil as the Knowledge for Administering, re- administering Reward and Punishment. So now that title is, what about, a title. As, that yeah. title is about as juicy <laughs> as the steak that I had. So my uh, friends, they, they took us out for a really special meal. Mm. They took us out to Mahogany's. I've never been there before. Oh, yeah. It's a great steak been to place. to Mahogany's. Oh, it's fantastic. Anyway, that title is about as juicy as the steak <laughs> that I had. Uh, so this is going to be good. I, look, the first question I wanted to ask you is, when did you first get interested in yeah. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's a good question. I suppose uh, ever since uh, start, you know, I started reading scripture um, uh, in my late teens very seriously, um, it, it was always sort of a question in the back of my mind. But, but, but it really became serious while I was a graduate student at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I think it was in 2010, I say in the book uh, there in the introduction, that I uh, was afforded the opportunity to take a course on Genesis 1 through 11. Wow. So we had to write, though, a midterm paper. And at that time, I was overloaded with uh, ancient languages. And of course, we were working on modern Hebrew at the same time. And so I thought, you know, I better pick a topic that there's going to be a lot written, uh, on which there's going to be a lot written. And so I decided, instead of the Tree of Life, which is pretty straightforward as a motif in the ancient Near East, and I suppose uh, on an interpretive level in Genesis 2 and 3, we know it dispenses eternal life on some level, that that really is uh, how the term should be interpreted. Uh, I thought, well, I'll stay away from the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what, what is this and what does this really mean? As I jumped into the commentaries, hoping that I would, you know, find sort of a, um, a consensus amongst the, common, uh, the commentators and the scholars uh, in order to really just present the paper and the work that needed to be presented, I found that there really wasn't one. Uh, and it just gripped me at that point. It was just such a fascinating uh, study. Simultaneously, however, I was actually reading through Second Samuel, which involves the David story, uh, or they call the throne succession narrative, of Second Samuel 9 through 20 and First Kings 1 to 2. It's a story about how Solomon became the successor to David. So they, a lot of scholars think that it is its own sort of uh, story, all its own, uh, with those particular chapters. Well, I was reading that simultaneously in Hebrew, noticing uh, that there was a play of good and evil going back and forth. And so anyways, it was just sort of a, a right moment at that time to really begin thinking about it. And uh, it really hooked me then. Uh, so I, I ended up writing that paper, working on it some more, in fact, while I was at the Hebrew University, and then just came to the conclusion that this would be a great project uh, for something at the doctoral PhD level. And one reason I thought that was is because in order to really get into the discussion, 
you had to dive through so many commentaries, so many articles that were just spread out across the board. I couldn't find just one just sort of volume. A one-stop shop. Yeah, that would yeah. help me with this. So I thought, oh, this would be great for a dissertation. So, You know what comes to my mind as you talk is I heard someone say once that uh, the only thing that's better than a story you don't know is a story you think you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. it's, I can't imagine how many commentaries you had to sift through, everything from ancient medieval sources yeah. to the modern era. And this is a topic that just about everyone is familiar with. That you, is correct. I mean, yeah. this is a depiction. I mean, we, we, no matter what part of society you're in, they're the motif and the imagery of the mm -hmm. tree of the knowledge of good and evil and taking of the fruit. We use it in idiomatic phrases yeah. and in and preaching, right. it's almost always referenced. Any anytime someone attempts to tell the story of the whole Bible, right. we do Genesis one through three, mm -hmm. and then jump somewhere else. But we at least always start there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We do, and uh, I mean, we have an artwork. We have it, you know, throughout throughout the millennia. And uh, interestingly, um, they're just, you know, with the fact that there was no actual uh, consensus. I think is what really just pulled uh, me along down that road. So uh, I'm excited for us to get in. You, yeah. you know, later in your work, we'll get to that part where you share all the different types of interpretations yeah. that that have come throughout yeah. the ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the first thing I want to start with is when you think of your, you know, whatever. Let's say your average church. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what do you think people in small groups and mm -hmm. pastors preaching? What are the more common interpretations yeah. of the tree of the knowledge good and evil yeah. that you find in Christianity? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It really is. I think um, it seems that for Christian interpretation, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil really just serves more as a symbol. So there's really two levels to it. There's the tree of knowledge, and then there's the knowledge of good and evil. But I think for most uh, Christian interpretation, the tree is sort of irrelevant. The point is that it's a divine test, and the humans do not pass that test. Uh, they disobey the command uh, not to eat from that tree. And so, you know, whether something is received from the tree doesn't really matter. What matters is that they, they sinned. And of course, I think a lot of this is sort of reading from back from Romans, reading back from uh, Paul, which is uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely fine to do uh, in that particular emphasis. But it could also be that we just don't really have any later focus, even in the New Testament, if you will, about uh, what the knowledge was, per se. Mm. Uh, no real definitive comment on it um, uh, from the apostles or from the New Testament writings. So that, that very well could be a reason why the tree itself sort of remains that way. Funny little fact, you know, a lot of, lot of discussion about what the fruit was. Okay. You know, <laughs> what, what, was it an apple? Was it... Uh, of course it was an apple, Of course right? it was an apple, right? Which, you know, in Latin, apple is malum, uh, and of course, evil is malus. Oh, uh, like so, Maleficent? I wonder if that's connected. Yeah, actually, it, I, I think it probably Am is on a right? root level, yeah. My uh, wife loves Disney. I hope oh. I'm not messing no. this up. <laughs> I don't know, because... Uh, uh, truthfully, I haven't actually studied Latin uh, to my own shame. But nonetheless, it's interesting yeah. that that play on words, uh, I think, is how it became confused with apple. Gotcha. A lot of other scholars would think, of course, it was a fig, right? Because they cover themselves with fig leaves. Where did they get the fig leaves? Oh, oh Probably from the tree itself, you know, something wow. along those lines. So, uh, yeah, so there's that discussion. So it really comes down to free will. They sort of see the tree as demonstrating that humans have free will. 
Uh, and that, that is important for them to, uh, in order to say that they are, uh, that they have moral uh, autonomy, that free will leads to consequences. I, this I have found quite interesting, is in Christian interpretation, I often get the whole point of the tree is to be like a parent who tells a child not to touch a hot stove. Mm. Yeah, that sort, of, uh, that sort of imagery with wisdom mm. of what is beneficial and what is harmful. Yeah. Of course... I like to say back to that, isn't that the point of the command, actually, mm-hmm. right? Not necessarily the tree itself, but, yeah. uh, but the command. So, I, I, you know, I think uh, in Christian interpretation, um, you could have something altogether different. You wouldn't necessarily need mm-hmm. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It could be called something else. No, so. yeah, I agree. I think in my tradition, the people I've been around, the story basically seems like Adam and Eve are with God, and God tells them not to do something. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what that something is. It's the whole, like you said, it's just it's the divine test, basically. Yeah, and so it could have been, don't do this, don't do that, and so there's not really much deep discussion on why is it specifically a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. Not really brought up. It's just viewed as whatever God told you not to do, you don't do. That's what sin is. (laughs) So they send, and we move forward. But Mm -hmm. there's nothing so significant about why say you know don't eat this versus don't eat that. yeah. So anyway, that's where I'm excited about your research, yeah. where you actually dig into yeah. why did God say, "Don't, don't eat from the tree yeah. of the knowledge of good and evil." Yeah. And as sort of a final comment to that, to yeah. that question on Christian interpretation, I think ultimately, though, and this is what really gets into more of the academic theologians and those who've commented in the past, you know, like Martin Luther, uh, some of the theologians of the modern period, like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or uh, Karl Barth. Um, they'll go to idolatry. I mean, I mean, idolatry is really the focus that's happening there mm. in that whole divine test with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't. It still doesn't quite explain uh, the tree itself uh, and, and what it may be or may not be to the writer. So, so uh, one of the questions I want to ask you before we really, really dive in mm-hmm. is: in your research, I, I noticed you you looked at all sorts of theories. Mm. Um, and later on, we'll get to the, like the really precise categories. But was there any theory you ran across that you just thought was just <laughs> you thought would, was a surprise or was interesting that you think for people to hear what what's been said? Mm. I was surprised. So when you uh, before we get to the theories, yeah. the one that really surprised me uh, was that in Ugarit, uh, which is um, a city state that we had up there on the coast uh, of present-day Syria, there near Lebanon, uh, Ugarit, uh, really around the 14th to 12th centuries BCE, a lot of texts that we found um, from Rosh Shamra. Uh, what we have there uh, is the mention of a tree of death. Mm. It's the really the only other place that we have something like that in the ancient Near East. We don't have any other mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Hebrew uh, Bible per se. Uh, we don't have any other mention of it in the ancient Near Eastern sources. So to me, that was one of the most interesting things to learn as far as an interpretation. One Israeli writer uh, gave a good interpretation of that, uh, talking that it, of course, leads to death. Um, but but to have it in the sources, I thought was quite interesting. I know uh, as far as the interpretations are concerned, I will say this. this. This is actually what really fascinated me, was that I think I counted somewhere between 20 and 25 different interpretations, wow. only amongst the critical scholars from like the 1850s forward. And, uh, and of course, you know, jumping back a little bit in, uh, here and there. 
But uh, but yeah, twenty to twenty five different. That's a lot. It is, and and I, and I mean different categories. But then, which I don't really outline all of those categories uh, in my uh, history of research chapter. But then within the categories, the sort of uh, variance that happens, the sort of differences between, let's say, if they have one category, they they think it means wisdom, for example. Well, mm-hmm. what do they mean? You know, they mm-hmm. all mean something very different as right. you're getting into it. So this is why uh, I really thought. A book would be be very interesting on this. So, well, I think this segues yeah. to uh, my next question, which is, what's at stake when it comes mm. to interpreting this? Because uh, first off, you've already illustrated for mm. us that there are there's clearly not everyone's not on the same page. Yeah. So that already signals some sort of problem. But I guess I'll even ask you beyond just the fact that we don't have clarity. What's at stake when it comes to whether we interpret what this tree is correctly mm. or not? That's good. No, it's a very very good question. So the first thing I would probably say is that um, we have a received text that we call the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and in that received text, Genesis 2 to 3 is at the very beginning of the story. So you would think that this matters as far as origins are concerned, as far as the origin story is concerned, um, that, that the interpretation of this particular term uh, matters for the rest of the story. Yeah. That's sort of how I see it. Sort of, uh, that, that's really what I what I mention in the book. Um, on another level, I think it it, it certainly matters uh, within the story of Genesis two to three, and that's because it seems to be the primary focus once you get to Genesis two nine, where it's mentioned, and then especially to the command in Genesis two sixteen to seventeen. Mind you, the woman isn't even created yet at that point. Mm. But we get to the command, and then the rest of the story of chapter three, especially, is all focused on this tree mm. of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, I think just for the interpretation of Genesis two to three, it matters not to say for the rest of the story that's coming. Sure. Um, and then, of course, as I know. You know, uh, um, looking at it on what I call a perlocutionary level, so sort of a received level beyond the Hebrew Bible in different communities and different times and 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 uh, later um, later uh, times, let's say the New Testament, for example. I think it matters. I, I think on some level, if we're dealing with what happened in the beginning, let's say with Jesus and the cross, somehow this has to matter with Adat Tovei Ra, with yeah. the knowledge of good and evil. So yeah. that, would, that would be my, uh, my answer to that, I think. Absolutely. So, yeah. I, look, I, I think it's an incredibly important mm-hmm. uh, story and an incredibly important component of one of the most important stories. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you've done this research to mm-hmm. help sift through all the theories and then present what your research has discovered. Yeah. In fact, I'd like to just dive into this. You... You balance two things in this, where mm-hmm. first you, you approach the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mm-hmm. from its ancient Near Eastern cultural background. That's right. As well as yeah. you take us through Hadat Tov and mm-hmm. you follow this Tov and Ra, mm-hmm. and you track th- all the way through m- most of the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. especially to the Deuteronomist and some succession narrative. Mm-hmm. Genesis, I mean, all over the place mm-hmm. with this, and you see, okay, what does this phrase mean? How mm-hmm. is this phrase used? Can you walk us through yeah. your research uh, yeah. in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely could. So um, maybe maybe it'd be good to begin sort of with the history of research. What sure. do you think about that? Great. So because, because that's how I sort of set up the whole book, is I want the reader to go through... Uh, my chapter two, which is the history of research, to bring you sort of up to speed yep. of all the other interpretations, because uh, I, I need you to be grounded in sort of the logic of the interpreters, which I try to do as, as part of my methodology. I don't want to be separate 
from the history of research and from the interpreters that come before. I want yep. to be really part of that discussion. Yes. And um, it's really interesting when you get into it. So one of the first really interpretations from the 19th century was that uh, uh, the that Hadat Tovirah, the knowledge of good and evil, that the humans receive in the story because once they eat, it, 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 the tree of life dispenses eternal life, so the tree of knowledge must dispense knowledge on some level, right? So the first uh, real interesting interpretation was that it was a power to discriminate between what is beneficial or harmful, sort of what we talked about with touching a hot stove or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or similarly, because as you know, in Hebrew, tov and ra could have something, could have that sort of functional meaning, right? something that's beneficial or harmful uh, to, yep. to the person. But as you know, too, in Hebrew, Tovei can also have the meanings of good and evil, right, mm-hmm. as far as a moral level is concerned. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I could say I, I have a bad cup of coffee. Yeah. How, how would I say that in Hebrew? Right. Right? You know, yep. I, I might be able to, to, to use the Ruth Ra, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I don't mean an evil cup of coffee. Correct. Unless, of course, it kills me after I drink it, then maybe maybe yep. someone might call that a, an evil cup of coffee or um, something along those lines. Uh, we have that, for example, uh, in um, in one of the ki- uh, first kings, I believe, or second kings, uh, with um, with the bad waters, the Maim Ra'im, right? Mm-hmm. Are the waters cursed? Are they bad? Right. Are they are they evil waters? You know, is is this sort of the the, the meaning coming through? Mm-hmm. So with that first interpretation, it's a power to discriminate between the beneficial and the harmful, mm-hmm. or between the good and the evil was uh, discounted by scholars quite quickly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was put forward by uh, like Buddha and uh, others, but Wellhausen, though he agreed that that was true of the lexemes and their different permutations, would say no, that can't be the interpretation. And uh, the reason they they come to that conclusion is simply this: Why would God forbid it on pain of death mm. in the narrative? It, you know, it seems like to be able to discriminate is yep. not only basic, but why would why would that be con- why would that be condemned? You know, right. I like guess that. yeah. I guess it would make sense. Yeah. You think about it's important in our life to be able to differentiate between morally mm-hmm. good and evil things, mm-hmm. and also what's so wrong about me learning a good way to do a podcast, or maybe <laughs> not so good ways to do podcasts. Exactly. Nothing, nothing moral there, but right. I'm just trying to maybe make some more efficient, effective mm-hmm. decisions. Yeah. Um, One issue I have is that in the narrative, the woman already seems to be discriminating. Hmm. Yeah, she already seems to have the power of discrimination. Not to, uh, and also I think a logical argument against hmm. it is to say that um, the command is actually the place where you learn what is beneficial and what is harmful. And by the way, can you break down a little bit discrimination, discriminate? Yeah. Obviously, not referring to that in some of its more negative connotations. No, like, yes, like, like you, knowing good food from bad food, for yes. example. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, being so, able to differentiate between the two, yeah. discern between. Gotcha. Yeah. Or and that is very much tied to individual autonomy, mm-hmm. deciding for yourself what's good and what's bad. You know these sorts of things. But yeah. that was one of the interpretations that was uh, sort of dismissed uh, uh, pretty quickly in scholarship. Omniscience is another one. Ah. Yeah. So omniscience, this knowledge of everything. Mm. And what happens is Tovira is taken uh, as a mirism. Mm. Uh, so what it means is that uh, it's everything between Tovira. Uh, and uh, omniscience. Another one, cultural knowledge. This is interesting. Hmm. So that after they partake of the knowledge in Genesis 3, they make clothes, sort of a cultural sign. Uh, Genesis 4 and 5, we have weapons and civilization coming forth. Uh, By the time you get to Genesis 9, you have the Tower of Babel, which also becomes 
uh, a problem within the narrative as far as uh, God coming down and saying we can't have this happening in the building of civilization. So uh, some will uh, argue that it's a cultural knowledge, uh, mm. something like that, the ability to create through culture. Mm. Uh, Wellhausen held to that hmm. uh, particular, uh, particular interpretation. Another one, magic. The magic one is interesting that maybe it's tied to divination, uh, because it's forbidden on that on that level with idolatry and divination. Um, uh, magic's interesting because you have to define magic when you really get into the core of it. How do we define and what do we mean by magic, especially yeah. on an ancient Near Eastern level? Sure. Um, some would say magic is, in fact, a methodology through which humans can uh, cause the divine to do something on their behalf. Yeah. Um, the problem with that interpretation is... By the time you get to Genesis 3.22, the Lord says, Behold, humans have become like one of us, Ladad Tovera. So in Genesis 3.22, the logic is that the Lord has this knowledge mm. of good and evil. So why would he need right. magic to cause himself to do this? You know what right. I mean? Yep. So sense. it depends on how you define magic uh, on an interpretive level. The last two, these are, these are interesting. The most ancient Jewish interpretation is sexual knowledge, <laughs> that it is, in fact, a greater metaphor for the act of sex itself. Uh, and that particular uh, interpretation is still very popular, probably, um, probably the most widely held, save for this last one, uh, which is wisdom. Mm. And uh, with wisdom... Like I said, the uh, differences in interpretation are many and, and great. In fact, I, I really dive into that deeply in my, my chapter with different footnotes uh, to describe how wisdom... The, the question is, what, what sort of wisdom are we talking about? Right. Especially in the Hebrew Bible, as you know, in your work that you've done on Proverbs, yeah. wisdom is praised. Like, you got to get wisdom, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, why would wisdom be withheld from that? Right, right. Why would wisdom be held? And, and what do we mean when we say wisdom? Quick so, question, by yeah. the way. What's the difference between the last and first category, the wisdom versus the discrimination yeah. between good and bad versus... I guess I see the good and evil. I mm -hmm. guess one of the discrimination between good and bad almost feels... Like wisdom. Like wisdom. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more asking that just as American English-speaking person. Yeah. I'm trying to understand, like, is there a distinction between those categories? Yeah. You? Well, I so the categories that I name are my own categories. Mm -hmm. Some of the scholars I put in there may not agree that uh, I'm putting them in that category or even with the category itself. But uh, these categories are mentioned in the other commentaries as well, these major ones anyways. Mm -hmm. um, the discrimination aspect would be the ability to actually discriminate between what is good and bad. I think discernment, I have another category that I call moral discernment. Okay. I think that is closer to what you mean by wisdom. Gotcha. The ability to do it well, right? Okay. The ability to discriminate in a way that is true, reasonable, righteous, logical, in line with what the Lord desires morally, all of that, I think, uh, would be tied more to wisdom uh, than just the ability to discriminate. Gotcha. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating history of research. It is. I mean, yeah. I learned so much going through that. <laughs> I, it's amazing how many different theories there are. Yeah. And like you said, you you want to step in line with of that tradition. That's right. Yeah. You know, you're engaging with the great conversation that's been happening, as you mentioned, at least a few hundred years, yeah. but of course you can go all the way back mm -hmm. to this ancient interpretation. Mm -hmm. So uh, you summarize all of that, mm -hmm. fascinating, plenty of details for people mm -hmm. who, who get the book, who can read it. Um, 
Let's dive into then your approach yeah. that you take yeah. now that you're trying to contribute and figure that out. What was your approach like? And yeah, maybe dive into that. That's good. I, I think this might be a good a good place to really just put out my methodology here because this okay. is this is very much tied to the approach. And what I do is I, I create sort of three categories that I saw in the history of research mm-hmm. that really need to um, that that need to be held by any one interpretation. Uh, and so, for example, the first category is this. In Genesis 3.5, the serpent explains that God does not want them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they will become like him in having hadat tovera, uh, or ledaat tovera, which we see confirmed in Genesis 3.22. The Lord confirms that indeed after they ate of the tree, they did receive the knowledge, right? So whatever knowledge this is, it's a divine knowledge. And so if you're going to have an interpretation, you're going to have to show that this is, in fact, a knowledge that the Lord possesses. And so, for example, if we say it's a sexual knowledge, Mm -hmm. a lot of the interpreters will dismiss that interpretation because they don't understand how the Lord, at least in in, in biblical scripture in the Hebrew Bible, is a sexual being. Mm. They might, you could take a step saying, well, he has progeny. Israel is his firstborn son, right, in Exodus uh, chapter 4. So maybe humans, through the, meta- through the act of sex, can bring forth progeny, and they can create like the Lord in that sense. I think the late Jacob Milgram has a, has a brilliant argument uh, in that direction. But in any case, the Lord's not a sexual being uh, in the Hebrew Bible, so that is sort of dismissed in that way. So whatever interpretation we hit, it has to be divine knowledge. Yeah. The second thing, and this is where my research really comes in, where my methodology um, sort of fills a gap, fills a lacuna. As you know, when we do research, we're looking, we're looking for that gap. Yep. Sometimes that gap is, you know, not, yeah. not, not very <laughs> right. large at all, but we're looking for something, yeah. right? So for this, I, I, what I saw in the history of research was that nobody was focusing on the divine character in the Hebrew Bible and the way in which the actual lexemes, a lexeme, of course, uh, being uh, the root uh, of the word tov and ra, right, mm-hmm. as we have in Hebrew, how those are functioning in relation to the divine character. Yep. So that is really uh, central to my methodology because I do painstaking work to show how good and evil function in relation to the divine character. Which I have to tell you, that part of your research gets me so excited, right? I obviously call this podcast Hebrew Bible Insights. Mm-hmm. And for me, my background is in the languages and you know, when you talk about what do words mean, right. you know, one of the best ways to look at it is, okay, well, how are the words used? Yeah. And tracking those words to see what context to try to determine everything from connotation to denotation, yeah. as well as just to contextual meanings, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to be used with certain characters and certain settings at certain points and stories. So your methodology for this is, I love this so much. Good. And I, I think my audience too will very much appreciate it because they're probably here because they appreciate, you know, using original languages in, yeah. in really good ways. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. But it was, it, was, it was fascinating to jump into that and to follow, follow that particular element of yep. the methodology through. Yep. So an interpretation has to, has to show that it's divine knowledge. It has mm-hmm. to show how uh, tovera functions in relation to the divine character. Mm-hmm. So back to the the interpretation that it's sexual knowledge. Okay, fine, but how does tovera function in relation to the divine character mm-hmm. to show sexual knowledge? Can yep. you, is there anything that shows that? And um, I would say no, there just is not. And then the third element is this: we the interpretation must show that the divine knowledge is reasonably forbidden on pain of death. 
So if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die in the day that you eat of it, right? And that does seem to be a death threat. I, I talk about that in my chapter four quite clearly with the grammatical construction that is mm. there. But in light of that, uh, if you say that, for example, the knowledge of good and evil is um, another interpretation is maturity. So it's just a way of showing that they have gone from um, from from being children, if you will, to to full adulthood. So mm. it's just a symbol for maturity. So okay, fine. Why is it forbidden on pain of death? Is maturity not something yeah. to be <laughs> right. you know desired in a sense? So <laughs> right. so the interpretation has to fit all three of yeah. those particular levels. So that's the methodology. So now I think we can get to that's really good. Yeah, your no, I'm, I'm glad that, we covered so. these two bases first. Good, yeah, this research. Yeah. So one more time, can you say the three categories of the yes, methodology? Yes, absolutely. So it, it, it must show, any interpretation must show that uh, it is divine knowledge possessed by the Lord and the divine beings of Genesis 3.5 and 3.22. Uh, you could, depending on what uh, community you come from, you're going to interpret that differently, but we could say angels, right? We could say divine beings in that light. Uh, two, it must show how Tovera functions in relation to the divine character. Since number one is assumed, then we have to go to number two. How does Tove Ra function in relation to the divine character? And then three, how is it reasonably forbidden on pain of death? Makes total sense. Yeah. So... I agree. Yeah, right. You're like, of course. <laughs> no, it, it just, you know, yeah. even when you list those categories, clearly the previous researchers, they noticed some of these things. Yeah. And also, it just makes sense within the story itself, mm, right, as, yeah. you, as you explain this out. Mm. So, obviously, the body of your dissertation mm -hmm. is massive and immense. Yeah. Uh, maybe which, you can just share one or a few of the, the pieces of research you did yeah. within that methodological framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very good. So, um, and uh, w what I'm assuming is if we, can, if we can interpret the knowledge in relation to the divine character, then we can say the humans have acquired that knowledge. That's, that's sort of the logic that, that I have behind it. So right. what I do is I set it up, but I have to begin with sort of the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds because, um, as you know, I believe deeply uh, <laughs> in uh, interpreting the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context. Yes. I absolutely love this, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's what I, I, I live for, right? It's, yep. it's, I'm very passionate about it. Yeah. And, um, and so I begin uh, right, I, I begin there. And... What I found, and this was very interesting, there were, there were two key elements that, that were integral to my research. The first one was beginning with the divine character, I, I did this. I said, well, we often see in Scripture that the Lord sees something, some action, uh, even in creation. He sees that it's good, right? Saw that it was good. Um, but he'll see some action, and he uh, he will call it Tov or Ra or Yashar, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the power of discrimination. That is moral discrimination. It could be both. could be one or the other. But then we have the second aspect, and that is where, after he has discriminated, he brings forth something described as a tov or a ra, experienced so by the character in the text. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So for example, I, and of course it goes right to the David story because it's very clear there. David uh, first takes Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Uh, he impregnates her. 
He brings back Uriah from uh, fighting and tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife to hide the fact that he impregnated her. He refuses, sends him back with his own death letter, right, to Joab. Joab puts him at the front of the armies, and he's struck down. Then David says, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. And then two verses later, it says, but the thing that David did was evil in the eyes of Mm -hmm. the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. And then shows up Nathan the prophet in the next chapter, and then uh, not even 20 verses later, I think verse 10 or 11, uh, Nathan says to to David, Behold, I am going to bring ra'ah upon you from your own house. Mm. And literally, behold, I'm going to bring evil upon you from your own house. Mm. And then if you follow that lexeme throughout the whole David story, you find out that that's exactly what happens. (laughs) (laughs) And that David knows it seems to be coming for his... It is his punishment or the curse that is upon him because of what... uh, what he did to Uriah the Hittite. So that's sort of the first literary level where I go with the knowledge of good and evil. I said, okay, we have two things here. We have the op- mm-hmm. we have these eyes, the Lord mm-hmm. sees and judges in that way, and then he brings forth something described as a tov or a ra in the text. Mm-hmm. With that, in the ancient Near Eastern context, I then discovered uh, a wonderful thing called the hermeneutical principle of divine retribution. So this is a a fun little term that scholars know with uh, regarding ancient texts in the Mediterranean world and around the ancient Near East. Ancient Near Easterners interpreted their histories. When they were writing history, they would structure it according to the hermeneutical principle of divine retribution, Mm. Um, which got to come up with something shorter than that. It just uh, gets a little too difficult to stay all the time. But um, the point being that when something good or bad happens to a community, to a people, to individuals, um, they will write their history and structure it as if divine retribution has happened. Mm -hmm. We have Amorite texts from Mari that -hmm. show this quite clearly. Uh, We have texts uh, all, actually, throughout all epochs of the ancient Near East that this is is clear. I think about the Moabite Mesha uh, tablet inscription where you have a story, you know, that that, uh, you compare to one of the stories in Kings Mm -hmm. about a battle, and you can read Israel's version of this versus the Moabite version of it. And sure enough, for the Moabites, they say the same thing, that Israel was dominating us because our God was displeased with That's us. Right. Yeah. You know, but then whenever the Moabites gain yeah. more power, it's because, you know, we we had yeah. favor with our yeah. God. And yeah. So. Daniel Bodie at the University of Paris has done such fascinating work on this. Uh, and I, I highlight his work extensively in my own. And um, he, he basically calls it a religious way of interpreting history. Hmm. Uh, and and he's, he's absolutely right. And all peoples throughout the Mediterranean world wrote their histories according to this. And that includes the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So once you put this into effect, you can't stop seeing it. It's yeah. everywhere. Then you find out that, oh, oh, look at this. The characters themselves are interpreting their, their events in this way yeah. uh, within the narratives. Not only are the narratives structured according to this principle, but the characters, even through their own... For example, Jacob, right before he's to meet Esau, he says, Lord, you promised you'd do good to me. Mm. You promised me good, and you promised me that that's what you would do, and so I'm expecting you to do it, because he's afraid Esau is going to come and, mm. uh, come and uh, not do good to him, if you will, yep. you know, yep. uh, bring harm upon him. And so 
Um, we also have the Deuteronomistic history. So if we go from Joshua to Second Kings, yeah. we have it is structured according to the hermeneutical principle of divine retribution. The whole point is that the people, when they do, uh, encounter hard times, they do so because they are being unfaithful to the covenant. Mm. And then it dawned on me, oh, look at this. The Eden narrative, Genesis 2 to 3, is structured according to the hermeneutical principle wow. of divine retribution, wow. right? Like, wow, big shocker. And it just really unlocked it. So then I said, okay, if this is the case in, in these ancient Near Eastern texts, we should be able to actually follow something as basic as the words good and bad mm-hmm. and evil mm-hmm. within the structure. It has to be there. And, and sure enough, I think it's all over the place. Like with the David story, if mm-hmm. you just follow Ra'ah through it, you can, you can follow the divine retribution. So just to make sure we're on the same yeah. page, can yeah. you give a nutshell definition of divine retribution? For, not, for those of not Yes, that's good. That. Because retribution in English, I mean, uh, maybe this is the case uh, uh, back in the past, I don't know. But I, I do know that retribution now is something negative, right? We usually mean it to, to focus on punishment. Yeah. But what I mean by retribution is both the good and the bad, right? Yeah. The reward and the punishment. I think reward and punishment is the the best language to use yeah. to really describe this. Yeah. So when we talk about divine retribution, uh, I have to therefore bring in the second element of my research from the ancient Near East, which yeah. is blessing and cursing. Okay. So if a deity in the ancient Near East is bringing forth reward and punishment, mm-hmm. then it has to be a blessing and a curse, because that's what a blessing and a curse is. A deity's reward and punish through blessing and cursing, right? And this is a great uh, uh, phenomenological um, characteristic of ancient Near Eastern texts. Great scholar, uh, Anne-Marie Kitts. I absolutely loved her work. She's a brilliant scholar. And um, she had a tome. I mean, it it is a tome. Uh, It is a book called Cursed Are You? Exclamation mark. And of course, during my PhD work, I came in every morning, and right there on my shelf is a book that says, Cursed Are You, right? <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful gift to come mark. to your office, too. And if you've ever done a PhD, you know, indeed, you are somewhat under a curse as you're doing it. So, um, Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you, have a, you have a good future ahead of you. So, um, But in, in that, uh, it's a phenomenology of cursing in Akkadian and Hebrew texts. Mm. And in that, she just shows widely that ancient Near Easterners were very cognizant of their surroundings because a blessing or a curse could uh, come at any moment. If you're interpreting your events that way, you're going to be very aware of it. Uh, And so, anyways, what what becomes very interesting is, again, uh, the the, the basic definition of a curse is the desire or the the invocation of a deity to bring an evil Mm -hmm. upon someone. Mm -hmm. The same for a blessing. It's the invocation to bring a good upon someone. So here we are. We're right there at the language of good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. The language of good and bad slash evil. So divine retribution, again, is in fact um, the divine realm bringing forth something described as a good or a bad slash evil, which I would call a blessing or a curse. And if we're going to be in a post-enlightened world where there are no deities and none of that exists, then we we know it to be nothing more than reward and punishment, right? Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. So... um, to lay a punishment on someone is to lay down an evil, if you will, or to lay down something along those lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just so just to talk this out a bit. Then yeah. so the idea is that you know you can speak about this both the ancient Near East framework. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe shift just maybe just yeah. your average Christian now. Mm-hmm. So we think, hey, God, God works and is involved in the world, mm-hmm. and then you know He's looking at things mm-hmm. whether good or bad, mm-hmm. right, and treating them accordingly. Mm-hmm. So. 
Mm-hmm. Is that like a is that too yeah. simple of a definition? No, no, to that's exactly it. No, yeah. I know it, it seems a little obvious to me, right? I mean, it, it just it, it comes to that level. But no, that's right. That's the way it is. Think of what he says to Abraham: "I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you." He means yep. I will bring a good upon those who do good to you, and I will bring an evil upon those who bring evil. Uh, or who, who do evil to you. And by evil, we don't mean moral evil, right? That's the problem with the Hebrew, the Hebrew word. I yeah. think what we actually mean is something like harm, misfortune, disaster, in light mm. of punishment. It is a just punishing that happens because I guess the So I guess because we, we wouldn't say that God is doing something that is wicked evil, or moral, wicked. or immoral, yeah. Yeah, in that exactly. sense. And I make that very clear that there doesn't seem to be a Hebrew text that actually charges God in that way. The prophets get close, right, in, 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 in moments when disasters come upon Israel or using enemies to, to bring disaster down mm-hmm. upon Israel. Um, or you have uh, the wisdom literature that, that really presses this whole yeah. retribution principle. We won't get into that here. But um, in any mm-hmm. case, that isn't, when I say that the Lord brings forth something in the text described as an evil, yeah. I certainly do not mean that he's doing wickedness or yeah. evil. I mean that the Hebrew needs to be parsed yeah. between what is moral evil and what is harm and sure. what is misfortune. Yeah, in that so, sense. I guess at the end of the day, too, I forget where, I think your thesis you talk about, or your dissertation about um, mishpat, justice. Yes. That ultimately God is acting in yeah. such ways that justice is happening. That's and right. So whether that, is, whether that involves blessings yeah. or curses, whether that involves... Yeah things that are good or bad. It's, yep. it's, it's doing things in such a way that it leads to a just situation. That is correct, yes. And I make that point. Yeah, when, when the Lord brings or threatens disaster upon Judah, for example, the point is to, to wipe it out and to start new. It, it is to do away with the idolatry, to do away with the unfaithfulness to the covenant, mm-hmm. and to begin again. Or we could say with the flood. The whole point is to wipe out what ne- what has happened, the disaster and the calamity that's been brought on by human actual evil and wickedness, uh, in light of the uh, in light of what humans have done uh, uh, in rebellion to the Lord. Um, it, it is the purpose of, of 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 doing away with that and starting anew, uh, and that's always the purpose of justice in the I think in the ancient Near East, uh, in that sense. So, so what if we can start? land the plane now, Yeah. if we start thinking then, what's the results of your research? Yeah. What do you say, what yeah. is the tree of knowledge of good so, evil? So this is, this is what I say it is. So uh, with that logic sort of laid out, I say that humans take the forbidden divine knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and they acquire a wisdom, uh, an ability, a knowledge, in order for themselves to become judges in the earth, uh, and to employ retribution at every level of society. And I don't just mean the curse, or I don't just mean punishment. I also mean reward. Uh, at one point in my, in my chapter four, when I'm going through this, that's why I call it the knowledge of good and evil as the knowledge for administering reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about reward and punishment, uh, putting good out withholding good and putting down something harmful upon someone, upon a people, whatever it may be, we're, we're, we're talking about ultimate power, right? He who has control of reward and punishment or uh, any group that has control of reward and punishment has ultimate power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you begin to think about it on those levels, not just in sort of the 
the, the, the horrible aspects that we have in history or the horrible aspects in our, in our present time. And you just think of it on sort of an individual, familial, mm-hmm. communal level, even something like an academic institution, right? There, mm-hmm. there, there are judges, they're giving out grades, these sorts of things. It's just, yeah. it works, it seems, on every level of society when you think of it on this, on this particular level. So my interpretation then being that humans have acquired this divine knowledge, but they have acquired it in a state of disobedience. Mm. And if you read the narrative, the Lord comes forth in the Eden narrative in Genesis 3, uh, 14 through 19, and he lays down curses. Mm-hmm. It's the first time that the Lord lays down something described as a curse. Mm-hmm. And though the lexeme reshain ein ra'ah is not used, uh, in that particular text, I argue that it could be inferred, right? Because yeah. in other places in the Hebrew Bible, it is used in that way. David, I'm going to bring ra'ah upon you. Sure. It's the same thing in the Eden narrative. He's laying down something that is a misfortune, that is a disaster uh, for a purpose. He is mm-hmm. laying down a punishment, but it has a purpose. Yeah. By the time you get to 322, there seems to be a threat now. If the humans in this state of disobedience, not just disobedience, that's that's where the Christian interpretation wants to take it, Mm -hmm. just with disobedience. But in the text itself, it's very clear that because they leda'at tovera, and they're in this state of disobedience, they cannot take from the tree of life. And he removes them quickly in something like an exile and stops them from getting back to that tree of life. So humans now have this knowledge for implementing ultimate power in the earth and because of it he cannot let them live forever because i guess then the implied the implied idea of how that ends up um and what ends up ensuing from that is in the hebrew bible and maybe even around us we look at life is that people who use that position of power of taking retribution in their own hands use that for things that we would use maybe the word evil for that it's not done in line with the way that god wants things to be done they have positions of power Uh, yeah no absolutely right if genesis 2 to 3 is saying anything it is actually i think well it's saying a lot of things right 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 just 2 to 3 is saying a lot of things and we're just focusing on this particular aspect but it is saying that particular thing with regard to retribution that if ultimate power because i think humans are meant to have this I do think it's a divine test. I I think that's the logic of the narrative, that had they obeyed, they then would have been able to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, receive divine wisdom for retribution, ultimate power, and then also eat from the tree of life Mm -hmm. and become, in essence, I don't want to say fully divine, but they do receive divinity in that sense. Well, it makes me wonder, I think about God tells them to to rule. So you already have these ideas yes, right. of some sort of whatever right. that looks like when it right. comes to authority. Yeah. And so you'd imagine that having the ability to make decisions over things would, would, would go with that. Precisely. I guess what mattered to God, to the Lord in that story then, was that people did it within his framework. That is of, correct. Of, so it's leaving retribution to him. Yeah. Maybe that people run things, but in line with his will, yeah. not taking retribution in our own hands where we decide. So I guess it goes back to the, the big difference between what is good in God's eyes versus what is good in our eyes. That is correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that is the point, that in the narrative, once you receive the divine knowledge, you must be one in submission to the character of the Lord, in submission to his will, and in submission to his moral standard. Mm-hmm. And you see this throughout, I mean, 
he expects his humans, those who are following him, to employ this, right, at every level of society. When, for example, if you get to Psalm 82, Peter Machinist had a fascinating article on Psalm 82 uh, um, about uh, the gods losing immortality. Mm. And the reason they lose immortality in Psalm 82, and then he has this, in the middle of the article, he just has this brilliant comment on Hadat Tovera, right? Oh, he, goes, he goes right there to the divine mm. knowledge of good and evil. Mm. And uh, it's, it's different than mine, but it was very instructive for me when I finally read this. It was, it was just wonderful. And um, the point, the the point with that being that those those gods, those divine beings, if you will, I don't want to say gods, those divine beings, when they lose their immortality, it is because they're not employing justice in the earth. Mm. They're not actually keeping watch on the morality of the earth and the wow. things that are happening. And so I think you could easily tie that back to the humans of Genesis two and three that yes, they've done something evil in the eyes of the Lord, but they can't be trusted now because of disobedience, because of sin, uh, in, in wielding this ultimate power, if you will. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think that is really the point throughout Scripture. And if you find Tove Ra in different parts of Scripture, the David story, the whole point is David brought a terrible curse down upon Uriah the Hittite. Yeah. He's a man who was I don't think he has any progeny, so he's a man who dies without progeny, took his wife, and then put him, uh, a man who was obeying Israel, who was obeying the Lord, who's fighting on behalf of the Lord in the kingdom of Israel, and he is treated so unjustly. And this is the interesting thing, that if we employ the hermeneutical principle of divine retribution at that moment, you would think that Uriah the Hittite had done something awful. But the truth is that the text calls it out. So the text isn't interpreting every event of good or bad, and we have this throughout the stories as well. We have that uh, when the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, they send it back and they say, okay, so if this thing continues, this horrible thing that's come upon us, then we know it was just by chance that the Ark was here. But if it abates, and if we are better then, and it goes away with the Ark, then we know that that's what was happening. That was the divine retribution. So it's not that the ancient Near Easterner was interpreting every moment of good or bad in mm -hmm. that way. But they are interpreting certain moments, and certain, uh, especially in their historical uh, writings, they are structuring yeah. it according to that way. So, so very interesting. Oh, uh, very interesting yes. indeed. Yeah. So that that is the interpretation yeah. that humans become yeah. like the divine beings in order to employ justice in the earth, at the individual, the familial, the communal, and the macro geopolitical levels. So, so then when you say there's almost two sides to that, then where the one side <laughs> is most of the stories of the Hebrew Bible is showing how the people who um, people do that in a bad way, mm -hmm. where they have positions of power, mm -hmm. like David, for example, yeah. does that poorly. But on the same, on the other side of the coin, you think this was a, the original intent was for humans to be able to have these positions of influence, yeah, yeah. but to do it in line with God's retribution yes. framework as yeah. opposed to our own. Is yeah, that a fair absolutely. I, I, I think that would be the way, uh, the way to take it. Like I say, in line with his character, in line with his will, and in line with his moral standards. And, and I think Genesis 2 to 3, um, I know this is like a question uh, that, that, um, that, 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 would, that, that you would wanted to ask, actually, because I know we had gone over some questions that you might ask. But this one I think is very interesting. If we were just to, just to take it sort of at a macro level as a story in a post-enlightened world, Genesis yeah. 2 to 3 would be saying, uh, you know, to those who are implementing this or doing this, be careful 
to do it with reason, with morality, and with the highest of ethical and moral standards, uh, as I just said, with morality. Uh, because if you don't, it will lead to disaster. And if it's not rectified in that disaster, it ultimately leads, like in Genesis 6, to the undoing of creation itself. Mm. Wow. And, and, and so that would sort of be if I were to just strip it out and say, here's, here's sure. a nice piece of wisdom from the ancient world. Yeah. But let's not do that. Let's actually take the text. Let's not deconstruct it, right? Let's sure. take it as it is. And I think what it is actually saying is that, yes, humans are to have that, but they are to do it in submission to the Lord. And the warning is, be careful uh, to do what is right in your own eyes through retribution, uh, thinking uh, or without the worry that the God of the garden uh, is, is, uh, is there uh, to call you to account, mm. uh, or is there to do what is is not there to do what is right in his own eyes, because he will do what's right in his own eyes. As the prophet says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, you know, something yeah. along those lines. Uh, and, and sort of it, at the macro level, I think Genesis 2 to 3 is saying to, to um, sort of big movements who have come to a place of hubris to mm. say, we can do whatever we mm. want in retribution, nobody can call us to account. I think Genesis two to three is saying, "Be careful! There is a God. There is a God who stands behind history, and He guides it according to His perfect implementation of Hadat Tovera mm. in the earth." That would be Genesis two wow. to three's warning, I think, at that point. So that is powerful, yeah. rich. It gives so much more dimension to this story. It really does. It's a brilliant story. I mean, these writers, what what they were doing. In the ancient world is so powerful. So it, for me, this your research takes the story. This isn't just a don't do this because I have to choose something for you not to do. Precisely. So, there, so this can be a story about obedience or disobedience. Right. There, there's a reason why. Yeah. It's specifically don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And here we have now an explanation of this is what this is the significance. Yeah. I want to put a link to uh, the book in our show notes. Excellent. For anyone who wants to get that. access to that. And this has been phenomenal. I've loved getting engaged with your work. And I think it's going to change change the game for a lot of people. And I cannot recommend this enough for, mm. uh, for obviously, hope the academic world continues to reference this and use this. People mm. doing research that's relevant, got to use this. Whether mm. students are out there, professors, this is a must. And also for people who are leading small groups or preaching or teaching yeah. in schools. Uh, look, there's no Bible class where there isn't at least some talk about Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah. Right? That's true. And, yeah. and look, I'll just tell you, I'm convinced. And, <laughs> Good. And I think this dimension, um, you know, not not covering this dimension, uh, we, there'd be something lacking. Mm. So, I, I mean, how, how, how many years did you spend researching this? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you count the Hebrew University, I guess... Uh, 11 years now, yeah, is where we're at. So Thank you for the investment yeah. you made. Yeah, you're this, welcome. So. This, this is phenomenal. Thank you for coming on the show. To well, thank to you for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, it's such a, such a great podcast. I, I'm really excited to see where you're going to take this. So, awesome. Yeah. Me too. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks.